This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. Chapter 28. Picturesque Horrors. The Legend of Brother Thomas. Sorrows Scientifically Analyzed. A Festive Company of the Dead. The Great Vatican Museum. Artist's Sins of Omission. The Rape of the Sabines. Papal Protection of Art. High Price of Old Masters. Improved Scripture. Scale of Rank of the Holy Personages in Rome. Scale of Honors Accorded Them. Fossilizing. Away for Naples. From the sanguinary sports of the Holy Inquisition, the slaughter of the Colosseum, and the dismal tombs of the catacombs, I naturally passed to the picturesque horrors of the Capuchin convent. We stopped a moment in a small chapel in the church to admire a picture of St. Michael vanquishing Satan, a picture which is so beautiful that I cannot but think it belongs to the reviled Renaissance, notwithstanding I believe they told us one of the ancient old masters painted it, and then we descended into the vast vault underneath. Here was a spectacle for sensitive nerves. Evidently the old masters had been at work in this place. There were six divisions in the apartment, and each division was ornamented with a style of decoration peculiar to itself, and these decorations were in every instance formed of human bones. There were shapely arches, built wholly of thigh-bones. There were startling pyramids, built wholly of grinning skulls. There were quaint architectural structures of various kinds, built of shin-bones and the bones of the arm. On the wall were elaborate frescoes, whose curving vines were made of knotted human vertebrae, whose delicate tendrils were made of sinews and tendons, whose flowers were formed of knee-caps and toe-nails. Every lasting portion of the human frame was represented in these intricate designs. They were by Michelangelo, I think and there was a careful finish about the work, and an attention to details that betrayed the artist's love of his labors as well as his schooled ability. I asked the good-natured monk who accompanied us, who did this? And he said, we did it, meaning himself and his brethren upstairs. I could see that the old friar took a high pride in his curious show. We made him talkative by exhibiting an interest we never betrayed to guides. Who were these people? We upstairs, monks of the Capuchin order, my brethren. How many departed monks were required to upholster these six parlors? These are the bones of four thousand. It took a long time to get enough. Many, many centuries. Their different parts are well separated, skulls in one room, legs in another, ribs in another. There would be stirring times here for a while, if the last trump should blow. Some of the brethren might get a hold of the wrong leg in the confusion, and the wrong skull, and find themselves limping and looking through eyes that were wider apart or closer together than they were used to. You cannot tell any of these parties apart, I suppose. Oh, yes, I know many of them. He put his finger on a skull. This was Brother Anselmo, dead three hundred years, a good man. He touched another. This was Brother Alexander, dead two hundred and eighty years. This was Brother Carlo, dead about as long. Then he took a skull and held it in his hand and looked reflectively upon it, after the manner of the grave-digger when he discourses of Yorick. This, he said, was Brother Thomas. He was a young prince, the scion of a proud house that traced its lineage back to the grand old days of Rome well nigh two thousand years ago. He loved beneath his estate. 
His family persecuted him, persecuted the girl as well. They drove her from Rome. He followed. He sought her far and wide. He found no trace of her. He came back and offered his broken heart at our altar and his weary life to the service of God. But look you, shortly his father died, and likewise his mother. The girl returned, rejoicing. She sought everywhere for him whose eyes had used to look tenderly into hers out of this poor skull, but she could not find him. At last, in this coarse garb we wear, she recognized him in the street. He knew her. It was too late. He fell where he stood. They took him up and brought him here. He never spoke afterward. Within the week he died. You can see the color of his hair faded somewhat by this thin shred that clings still to the temple. This, taking up a thigh-bone, was his. The veins of this leaf in the decorations over your head were his finger-joints a hundred and fifty years ago. This business-like way of illustrating a touching story of the heart by laying the several fragments of the lover before us and naming them was as grotesque a performance and as ghastly as any I ever witnessed. I hardly knew whether to smile or shudder. There are nerves and muscles in our frames whose functions and whose methods of working it seems a sort of sacrilege to describe by cold physiological names and surgical technicalities, and the monk's talk suggested to me something of this kind. Fancy a surgeon, with his nippers lifting tendons, muscles, and such things into view, out of the complex machinery of a corpse, and observing, Now this little nerve quivers, the vibration is imparted to this muscle, from here it is passed to this fibrous substance, here its ingredients are separated by the chemical action of the blood, one part goes to the heart and thrills it with what is popularly termed emotion, another part follows this nerve to the brain and communicates intelligence of a startling character. The third part glides along this passage and touches the spring connected with the fluid receptacles that lie in the rear of the eye. Thus, by this simple and beautiful process, the party is informed that his mother is dead, and he weeps. Horrible! I asked the monk if all the brethren upstairs expected to be put in this place when they died. He answered quietly, We must all lie here at last. See what one can accustom himself to. The reflection that he must some day be taken apart like an engine or a clock, or like a house whose owner is gone, and worked up into arches and pyramids and hideous frescoes, did not distress this monk in the least. I thought even he looked as if he were thinking, with complacent vanity, that his own skull would look well on top of the heap, and his own ribs add a charm to the frescoes, which possibly they lacked at present. Here and there, in ornamental alcoves, stretched upon beds of bones, lay dead and dried-up monks, with lank frames dressed in the black robes one sees ordinarily upon priests. We examined one closely. The skinny hands were clasped upon the breast. Two lustreless tufts of hair stuck to the skull. The skin was brown and sunken. It stretched tightly over the cheekbones and made them stand out sharply. The crisp, dead eyes were deep in the sockets. The nostrils were painfully prominent, the end of the nose being gone. The lips had shriveled away from the yellow teeth, and brought down to us through the circling years, and petrified there, was a weird laugh a full century old. It was the jolliest laugh, but yet the most dreadful, that one can imagine. Surely, I thought, it must have been a most extraordinary joke this veteran produced with his latest breath 
that he has not gone done laughing at it yet. At this moment I saw that the old instinct was strong upon the boys, and I said we had better hurry to St. Peter's. They were trying to keep from asking, Is—is is he dead? It makes me dizzy to think of the Vatican, of its wilderness of statues, paintings, and curiosities of every description in every age. The old masters, especially in sculpture, fairly swarm there. I cannot write about the Vatican. I think I shall never remember anything I saw there distinctly but the mummies, and the transfiguration by Raphael, and some other things it is not necessary to mention now. I shall remember the transfiguration partly because it was placed in a room almost by itself, partly because it is acknowledged by all to be the first oil-painting in the world, and partly because it was wonderfully beautiful. The colors are fresh and rich. The expression, I am told, is fine. The feeling is lively. The tone is good. The depth is profound. And the width is about four and a half feet, I should judge. It is a picture that really holds one's attention. Its beauty is fascinating. It is fine enough to be a renaissance. A remark I made a while ago suggests a thought and a hope. Is it not possible that the reason I find such charms in this picture is because it is out of the crazy chaos of the galleries? If some of the others were set apart, might not they be beautiful? If this were set in the midst of the tempest of pictures one finds in the vast galleries of the Roman palaces, would I think it so handsome? If, up to this time, I had seen only one old master in each palace, instead of acres and acres of walls and ceilings fairly papered with them, might I not have a more civilized opinion of the old masters than I have now? I think so. When I was a schoolboy, and was to have a new knife, I could not make up my mind as to which was the prettiest in the showcase, and I did not think any of them were particularly pretty, and so I chose with a heavy heart. But when I looked at my purchase at home, where no glittering blades came into competition with it, I was astonished to see how handsome it was. To this day my new hats look better out of the shop than they did in it with other new hats. It begins to dawn upon me now that possibly what I have been taking for uniform ugliness in the galleries may be uniform beauty after all. I honestly hope it is to others, but certainly it is not to me. Perhaps the reason I used to enjoy going to the Academy of Fine Arts in New York was because there were but a few hundred paintings in it, and it did not surfeit me to go through the list. I suppose the Academy was bacon and beans in the forty-mile desert, and a European gallery is a state dinner of thirteen courses. One leaves no sign after him of the one dish, but the thirteen frighten away his appetite and give him no satisfaction. There is one thing I am certain of, though. With all the Michael Angelos, the Raphaels, the Guidos, and the other old masters, the sublime history of Rome remains unpainted. They painted virgins enough, and popes enough, and saintly scarecrows enough, to people paradise almost, and these things are all they did paint. Nero fiddling or burning Rome, the assassination of Caesar, the stirring spectacle of a hundred thousand people bending forward with rapt interest in the Colosseum, to see two skillful gladiators hacking away each other's lives, a tiger springing upon a kneeling martyr, these and a thousand other matters which we read of with a living interest must be sought for only in books, not among the rubbish left by the old masters, who are no more, I have the satisfaction of informing the public. They did paint, 
and they did carve in marble one historical scene, and one only, of any great historical consequence. And what was it, and why did they choose it particularly? It was the rape of the Sabines, and they chose it for the legs and busts. I like to look at statues, however, and I like to look at pictures, also, even of monks looking up in sacred ecstasy, and monks looking down in meditation, and monks skirmishing for something to eat, and therefore I drop ill-nature to thank the papal government for so jealously guarding and so industriously gathering up these things, and for permitting me, a stranger, and not an entirely friendly one, to roam at will and unmolested among them charging me nothing, and only requiring that I shall behave myself simply as well as I ought to behave in any other man's house. I thank the Holy Father right heartily, and I wish him long life and plenty of happiness. The popes have long been the patrons and preservers of art, just as our new practical republic is the encourager and upholder of mechanics. In their Vatican is stored up all that is curious and beautiful in art. In our patent office is hoarded all that is curious or useful in mechanics. When a man invents a new style of horse-collar, or discovers a new and superior method of telegraphing, our government issues a patent to him that is worth a fortune. When a man digs up an ancient statue in the Campania, the Pope gives him a fortune in gold coin. We can make something of a guess at a man's character by the style of nose he carries on his face. The Vatican and the Patent Office are governmental noses, and they bear a deal of character about them. The guide showed us a colossal statue of Jupiter in the Vatican, which he said looked so damaged and rusty, so like the god of the vagabonds, because it had but recently been dug up in the Campania. He asked how much we supposed this Jupiter was worth. I replied with intelligent promptness that he was probably worth about four dollars, maybe four and a half. A hundred thousand dollars, Ferguson said. Ferguson said further that the Pope permits no ancient work of this kind to leave his dominions. He appoints a commission to examine discoveries like this, and report upon the value. Then the Pope pays the discoverer one-half of that assessed value, and takes the statue. He said this Jupiter was dug from a field which had just been bought for thirty-six thousand dollars, so the first crop was a good one for the new farmer. I do not know whether Ferguson always tells the truth or not, but I suppose he does. I know that an exorbitant export duty is exacted upon all pictures painted by the old masters, in order to discourage the sale of those in the private collections. I am satisfied also that genuine old masters hardly exist at all in America, because the cheapest and most insignificant of them are valued at the price of a fine farm. I proposed to buy a small trifle of a Raphael myself, but the price of it was eighty thousand dollars. The export duty would have made it considerably over a hundred, and so I studied on it a while, and concluded not to take it. I wish here to mention an inscription I have seen, before I forget it. Glory to God in the highest! Peace on earth to men of good will! It is not good scripture, but it is sound Catholic and human nature. This is in letters of gold around the apsis of the mosaic group at the side of the Scala Santa Church of St. John Lateran, the mother and mistress of all the Catholic churches of the world. The group represents the Saviour, St. Peter, Pope Leo, St. Sylvester, Constantine, and Charlemagne. Peter is giving the pallium to the Pope, and a standard to Charlemagne. The Saviour is giving the keys to St. Sylvester, and a standard to Constantine. 
no prayer is offered to the Saviour, who seems to be of little importance anywhere in Rome. But an inscription below says, Blessed Peter, give life to Pope Leo, and victory to King Charles. It does not say, Intercede for us through the Saviour with the Father for this boon, but Blessed Peter, give it us. In all seriousness, without meaning to be frivolous, without meaning to be irreverent, and more than all, without meaning to be blasphemous, I state, as my simple deduction from the things I have seen and the things I have heard, that the holy personages rank thus in Rome. First, the Mother of God, otherwise the Virgin Mary. Second, the Deity. Third, Peter. Fourth, some twelve or fifteen canonized popes and martyrs. Fifth, Jesus Christ the Saviour, but always as an infant in arms. I may be wrong in this. My judgment errs often, just as is the case with other men's, but it is my judgment, be it good or bad. Just here I will mention something that seems curious to me. There are no Christ's churches in Rome, and no churches of the Holy Ghost, that I can discover. There are some four hundred churches, but about a fourth of them seem to be named for the Madonna and St. Peter. There are so many named for Mary that they have to be distinguished by all sorts of affixes, if I understand the matter rightly. Then we have churches of St. Louis, St. Augustine, St. Agnes, St. Calixtus, St. Lorenzo in Lucina, St. Lorenzo in Damaso, St. Cecilia, St. Athanasius, St. Philip Neri, St. Catherine, St. Domenico, and a multitude of lesser saints whose names are not familiar in the world. And away down, clear out of the list of the churches, comes a couple of hospitals. One of them is named for the Saviour, and the other for the Holy Ghost. Day after day, and night after night, we have wandered among the crumbling wonders of Rome. Day after day, and night after night, we have fed upon the dust and decay of five-and-twenty centuries, have brooded over them by day, and dreamt of them by night, till sometimes we seemed mouldering away ourselves, and growing defaced and cornerless and liable at any moment to fall a prey to some antiquary, and be patched in the legs, and restored with an unseemly nose, and labelled wrong and dated wrong, and set up in the Vatican for poets to drivel about, and vandals to scribble their names on for ever and for ever more. But the surest way to stop writing about Rome is to stop. I wish to write a real guide-book chapter on this fascinating city, but I could not do it because I have felt all the time like a boy in a candy-shop. There was everything to choose from, and yet no choice. I have drifted along hopelessly for a hundred pages of manuscript without knowing where to commence. I will not commence at all. Our passports have been examined. We will go to Naples. End of chapter 28